1: This is On Point, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. For much of her life, Margarita Gokun Silver dealt with headaches, mostly run-of-the-mill stress headaches, treatable with over-the-counter painkillers. She outgrew her 20s and things changed.
2: I think I was about maybe in my late 30s when I started getting really bad migraines. I went out to lunch with my daughter and it just, suddenly appeared it just came with such intensity that i barely made it home from lunch i drove as fast as i could ran upstairs and i just threw up everything
1: the pain cut margarita down she couldn't get out of bed for seven hours and when she reached for that bottle of ibuprofen it did nothing
2: i think it felt like a train maybe um it usually feels like a lot of pressure right around my eyebrows and around my temples. And it's just as if somebody is just squeezing and pressing on those areas really, really hard. And all of that begins resonating in the back of my head. So from then on, it was just years and years of trying to figure out what can help. Um, and and they were coming quite often. although. Whenever I've seen doctors, they would be like, oh, well, every two weeks, that's not too bad. (laughs) And I was like, huh, uh, pretty bad every two weeks if you were out of commission for three days, uh, because my migraines would last about three days.
1: So she did know she was experiencing migraines, but Margarita never got a clear diagnosis for why she was suddenly experiencing these headaches. But doctors did not hesitate to offer her possible treatments.
2: I know when I started going to doctors, um, you know, people would throw medications at me or one time I tried Botox um, just basically try to maybe prescribe a pill that would prevent it. You know, every medication at some point would either stop working or give me terrible rebounds. The headache would come back
1: much worse. So after several failed attempts, Margarita tried acupuncture. You know, I think I went to an
2: acupuncturist for, I want to say, six months. Um, And it did help. Um, They started spacing out my migraines and they lost it a little less. So I continuously go back to acupuncture. I haven't done it in a while. But at this point, my migraines are a little better. They don't come as often. So I um, am able to manage them, just basically, I guess, giving myself a rest for one or two days and uh, using cold compresses that really helps on my head and just, you know, trying to uh, keep away from the screens, as I said. But if it gets worse, then, yeah, I'm definitely going
1: back to acupuncture. So Margarita found some solutions that, mostly work for her. But the solutions don't answer the questions she still has. Why did the headaches come on so suddenly? Why did so many medications not work for her? And why was acupuncture working?
2: I mean, no doctor has told me, Um, acupuncturists obviously tell me that they, that's been proven to help. Um, But as far as cold compresses, um, it just feels good. It's it's kind of, I feel what I need at the moment. And you may laugh, but for me, for example, is is cans of some beverage, Coke or beer or anything. If you put in the refrigerator, they have the right amount of coldness when you apply it to that area of their eyebrows, and it just helps.
1: That's Margarita Gokun Silver. She's a writer and author of I Named My Dog Pushkin and Other Immigrant Tales, and she's based in Oxford, England. Now, if Margarita's experience sounds familiar, even down to pressing that cold can of Coca Cola against your forehead, that's because it's pr- incredibly common. New research finds that over 52% of the world's population, more than half, experienced a headache disorder in just the past year, and that's half of all of humanity. An awful lot of people suffering with a disorder that science still knows so little about. And don't you kind of want to know why? Well, we do. So that's why today we're turning to Dr. Amal Starling, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. She joins us from Tempe, Arizona. Dr. Starling, welcome to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a good day when
1: we get to talk about migraine. <laughs> you may be one of the few people who gets to say that um, authentically, here, Doctor Starling. But but I but I hear you, and you know about this personally, right? Do you, you have a story with uh, struggling with recurrent severe headaches. Is that not right? I do. I do. It's very personal to me
0: because I, you know, I had some visual symptoms with my had pain. And so I did fortunately receive a diagnosis quickly um, when I was in college. Um, However, similar to the patient who was just speaking, I wasn't necessarily offered a lot of great options. I was just told I was too stressed out. I needed to get some massages. I needed to not be a double major. And I basically was like, I'm in college. I don't have money to be able to get massages. I want to do a double major. So I just took over-the-counter medications And similar to the patient, again, some of those over-the-counter medications started causing rebound headaches for me, but I didn't know. And... Since the first doctor didn't offer me anything, I didn't go back. And it wasn't until medical school when I was learning about migraine that I was like, oh, there are other options.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we're really glad to have you today because anytime um, there's a, a study or a body of research that finds that an overwhelming number or at least so many people are suffering from Uh, from something that we don't understand a lot about. We want to know why. So, But first of all, this this new research that finds that um, more than half of all people on the planet experience some kind of headache disorder in the past year. First of all, Dr. Starling, does that number make sense to you? Because it does seem massive to me.
0: It it does make sense to me because there are multiple types of headache disorders. And one of the most common ones is what we call tension-type headache. Now, that's not what I commonly see in my clinic. That's a more mild to moderate headache. Um, If someone needs to take something, they might take something over the counter. It doesn't impair their day-to-day function. What I see in my clinic and what really leads to migraine being one of the leading causes of disability worldwide is migraine disease. This is a genetic neurologic disease. There are environmental factors that can contribute to it. But it is also very common. One in five women, one in 16 men, one in 11 children are affected by migraine.
1: Wow. Okay. But so when we're talking about headache disorders, and again, um, this huge number of half the world's population last year saying they may they suffer from some kind of disorder, it, it seems to be a broad definition
0: it is it is so a lot of people will um you know ask me to do a talk about headaches and that's like asking someone to do a talk about fever Mm. headache is a symptom it's not a diagnosis it is a symptom of a variety of neurologic disorders the one that is the most disabling, and the one
1: that I see in my clinic, is migraine. Understood. Okay, so that makes sense because the, that again, that like you know, three and a half billion people saying that they suffered from a headache disorder uh, is an eye-catching headline. But it makes more sense now when we're talking about a, a broader definition. So we will focus on on the, the severe end of the scale, uh, Dr. Starling, the the migraine end, as you're as you're talking about, but. If we use the phrase headache disorder for for what um, are more much more common, maybe, stress headaches, tension headaches, the kind of thing that, you know, there's eight zillion ads on TV for various over-the-counter drugs for, I mean, should we be concerned about that end of the scale, too? Uh, because that, to me, seems like almost like a normal part of life. We should still be concerned about it because most of those
0: individuals who are seeking care for their quote unquote stress headache or sinus headache or tension headache probably have migraine and they're being misdiagnosed and undertreated and it's adding to the disability of migraine because if someone really had a stress headache, tension type headache, they're likely not seeking treatment because it's not impairing their day-to-day life. If it's resulting in impairment of function, It is more than likely migraine that is not diagnosed and thus undertreated.
1: Okay. So how much would you say that we, being science, knows about what causes headache disorders?
0: We know a lot more than we did before. The science has been evolving. Um, It used to be thought that it was related directly to blood vessels, and that's why you get this pounding pain because you can feel your blood vessels. Interestingly, there was a study that looked at the frequency of that pulsation that people feel, and they found that it is not aligned with your actual blood flow or your pulse. And now we also know that migraine is not as much related to a blood vessel disorder. It's not a vascular disorder, but rather it is a disorder of abnormal brain function. And we know the different parts of the brain that are involved and the different um, targets or the different proteins that might be involved in migraine, but we still have a lot more to learn. One of the key things to remember is that migraine does have genetic factors, but it's not one gene or one genetic mutation, but they've identified many different genes and genetic mutations that might contribute to migraine vulnerability. But here's the kicker. Different people have a different combination of these genetic mutations, so not everyone's migraine disease is exactly the same as the next person's. So the symptoms can be a little bit different and also the treatment can be a little bit different. So we do have good treatment options for a subset of patients with migraine. But we still have to advance our scientific knowledge and our treatment for the other subsets that we still haven't been able to treat appropriately.
1: Okay. Now, we've got 30 seconds before uh, our first break, Dr. Starling. Um, could you tell me what sort of what happened with, with you and your experience with uh, a severe headache disorders? Did you, you know, did you eventually find a, a way to, to get it under control?
0: I I did. I was able to find as-needed rescue medications, and those are the medications you take when you have a migraine attack. And there have been periods of my life, migraine fluctuates throughout life, where I've had an increased frequency of attacks and I've needed to prevent or reduce the frequency, and that required a daily medication for a period of time. Um, And so I've been able to figure out how to live my life with the diagnosis of migraine, and that's my goal for all my patients.
1: Well, we are talking this hour—this uh, hour, excuse me—about the widespread prevalence of severe headache disorders and why science has so much farther to go to understand what's really driving it in the brains of many millions of individuals. So, we'll have a lot more to talk about when we come back. This is on point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint On Point. That's Indeed.com onpoint On Point terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the widespread prevalence of severe headache disorders. There was new research uh, recently that found that more than 50 percent of people worldwide have experienced a headache disorder in the past year, and this is uh, a result of researchers trawling through more than 300 scientific publications on headaches. And amassing that information and coming up with this conclusion. So the question we're asking is, if there indeed are so many people around the world, including here in the United States, who are suffering from headache disorders, why is there such a big gap between that and how much science understands and even how much headache science is being funded? I'm joined today by Dr. Amal J. Starling. She's Associate Professor of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic, who studies primary and secondary headache disorders, including migraines and post-traumatic headaches. Dr. Starling, one just more quick question about um, this finding, this sort of like meta, meta finding here um, that I keep referring back to. Just from your sort of professional opinion, do you think that the pandemic had anything to do with it? Because the researchers were looking at, uh, at papers published over the past year and the entire world has been in the grips of, a, you know, an, an historic event.
0: I I do think the pandemic has likely had a contributing factor. I think that what we've been seeing in clinic, as well as what we've seen in some of the literature, it's early and there will be more literature that comes out over the next several years, um, is that individuals who developed COVID 19, who contracted COVID 19, um, they had a headache at the time of the infection. But many of these individuals, even after the infection has resolved, and they no longer have the virus in their body, maybe weeks or even months later, they may have a residual or persistent headache. So like a new onset of a headache disorder that was triggered by the infection, or they may have had a headache disorder before, but it was like very mild and insignificant, infrequent. Um, and now after they had COVID-19, um, it is something that is really impairing their function on a day-to-day basis. Mm. In addition, there's also people who are, may not have had COVID-19, but They've been working remotely. They've been on screens and screens are also a potential trigger uh, for individuals having more frequent migraine attacks. And also maybe the isolation, the addition of not being out and socializing and exercising, those things may have also contributed to worsening of underlying headache disorders that now are kind of being unmasked in the setting of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. You know, folks, by the way, if uh, any of this sounds familiar to you, or if you suffer from um, severe headache disorder, definitely, Definitely do hop on social media, Twitter or Facebook, and uh, let us know about what your experiences are and your questions for Dr. Starling. And we'll also be hearing from a longtime um, headache researcher uh, as well who will join us in a minute here. So a panel of folks who are some of the best in answering questions about this widespread problem. And and Dr. Starling, first of all, thank you for sharing your own personal experience with this. And if you don't mind, I... I I usually don't like to actually talk about my health on the air, but but it just it it is familiar to me because especially when you said the genetic component, I do have members of my family who have been severe migraine sufferers, and I wonderfully inherited the same. And like my uh, actually, given the age I'm in now, I think I might be outgrowing it because that's what happened to uh, the other member of my family who suffered from severe migraines for decades. Eventually, just age is what solved the problem for him. But we had the same symptoms. Like when I get hit with um, a migraine, first I get, you know, the classic tunnel vision, uh, photosensitivity, tightness around my head, nausea. And then I think like the distinguishing common symptom between me and my other family member is there's this bizarre sharp pain that feels like, the way I describe it to folks, is it feels like a railroad spike being pounded into my head from just like the, like the top of my skull behind my right eye and then it's as if the spike was coming out of underneath my, my right cheekbone. And until that resolves, it just like, I, I really can't quite function. And fortunately today it's, you know, I, this barely happens to me anymore, but it is an experience that you just don't forget the uniqueness of the sensations that are so different from when you just, um, not to, not to, uh, uh, brush off smaller headaches, but it's just it feels distinctly different to me than when I have, like, say, uh, I've been staring at the computer too long kind of headache. So it's part of the problem here, um, Dr. Starling, in that we kind of often use the same term to describe really a wide variety of experiences. Yes,
0: it is. That is, I think, a part of the stigma of migraine is that headache as a symptom is so common. And like you said, the, the headache that you can get just from being out in a bright area or being using screens or just being at a concert where it was really loud, and you have like a minor headache. And because people have those symptoms frequently, there is a stigma and a minimization of what migraine is, which are, you know, you described it beautifully because when you described your experience, It's not just about the pain. It's not just about headache. And that's what's key. Migraine is not synonymous with a really bad headache. Migraine is a sensory processing disorder. And pain is one of those sensory inputs that's abnormally processed. But so is light. And sound and motion, people get nauseous and vomit, and they have to curl up in a ball and not do anything until this experience gets to a tolerable level. But they still have other symptoms in this Migraine hangover, or what scientists cause, call a postdrome. After the pain mm. phase is done, you just feel wiped out.
1: Hmm. Well, look, now the comments are coming in. Uh, Dr. Starling, Adrian Brown says, I have suffered with migraine headaches before I could speak. Mine mm. is strongly genetic because my mother suffered with debilitating migraine headaches. Uh, and Nina Max Daly is saying, Megna, totally feel your description of a migraine. I have horrible chronic migraines more than 60. 16 days per month, I presume, and I've had incredible luck with Botox. Also have to plug, uh, oh, her, I guess the, the the program because her insurance is horrible. Oh, and the only way she can afford the Botox for migraine is because the company pays half my bill. So let's keep that one in mind because we're going to talk about access to treatment uh, in a minute here, Dr. Starling. But I, I want to get a sense to you from you about how how we might understand if there's a disconnect between the widespread prevalence of the suffering versus how many experts like you are out there uh, or, or the funding um, available to continue research here. Because there's, what, more than 40 million Americans uh, living with migraine disorders. But how many board-certified, do we know, how many board-certified headache specialists like you are there?
0: There is less than 700 throughout the nation and they're geographically like in the larger cities on the coasts. So, so many people, um, you know, cannot even access a headache specialist if they wanted to. If you talk to any of my colleagues around the nation, we all have incredible wait lists of people trying to get in to see us because there's just so few of us. And A part of that is the stigma of migraine. I remember as a young neurology resident when I decided I wanted to subspecialize in headache medicine, that I had people that I looked up to, mentors that I had through residency that came to me and said, you know, oh, Amal, you're, you're so smart. Why are you are you doing headache medicine? Why don't you do something more important or more hardcore neurology like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis? So even amongst the medical community, there is a stigma of migraine
1: not being a legitimate neurologic disease. I suppose one answer to their question is, colleagues, there are 40 million patients out there. I will never be out of a job. I mean, like that's so that's really interesting. That is absolutely fascinating. That's sort of like this isn't um, uh hardcore science, right, or or hardcore n- neurological medicine here. Um, does Do you think that could be part of the picture about why it seems to be? That there's some there's a there's a funding gap here, right? Because if if you funded migraine research based on what we found is the National Institute of Health's own documentation documentation of burden of disease, right? Uh, Migraine research should be funded at more than two hundred million dollars annually, but it gets a tenth of that, something like nineteen to twenty four million, right? It is so
0: crazy that they published that their own data. And it just shows that migraine is so underfunded, and it is not at all aligned with the disease burden. And it all comes down to stigma. Um, Stigma is such a large component um, as to why there is underfunding and uh, uh, less research. And when you have a um, less—a biologic understanding that we're still building— If we had that understanding, it would legitimize the disease for many people. And so why do we have that stigma? Well, one of the things we mentioned is more common in women, Mm -hmm. three times more common in women. So I think sexism plays a role here. It's also associated for many women with their menstrual cycle. So there's this you know, perception of migraine effects, weak, frail um, women that are just too emotional and they're just too stressed out. And I think that's a big contributing factor. I think the other thing, too, is that it is thus far an invisible disease. Yeah. There are no objective biomarkers. So there's this question in the back of some people's mind, whether it's the lay public or even maybe even some physicians, like, is it really real? And, and actually, even people who live with migraine, it's invisible because they hide it. Um, they even sometimes will refuse the diagnosis and they unfortunately, suffer in isolation. So there's this huge invisible component that adds to the stigma and also then adds to us not being able to um, advocate for increasing that funding. And we're trying to change that. We've made some efforts recently, but there's a lot of work to be done.
1: Yeah. Um, I will tell anyone listening now who doubts it that the feeling of a railroad spike being pounded with a 15-pound hammer into your brain is a real Feeling. Uh, Again, we're getting here. So many comments here. Here's Carly Cloyd, who says her daughter was diagnosed years ago as having migraines and never got any relief. She has since been diagnosed with daily persistent headache, which most likely came from an ear infection that went undiagnosed in middle school. Carly Carly is saying it's relatively unknown. But do you think in the future there will be more studies on that ailment? Dr. Starling.
0: Yeah, so I think she's describing a disorder that's called new daily persistent headache. And in that headache disorder, there's like a date. There's an event that occurs and they someone did not have any headaches before then. Um, and then after that, they've developed headache and often with other symptoms as well. And that's also a disorder that we know very little about, even less than migraine. It's likely going to be that there are a couple different diseases that result in that picture, that clinical picture. Um, Like she described, sometimes it can be an infection that started it. And we were talking about the pandemic. Mm. I have been diagnosing some people with new daily persistent headache, which may have been triggered by a COVID-19 infection. Um, But we're still learning a little bit more about that. There is active research, but we do need more. However, the research in migraine really does benefit all of the other headache disorders as well because it often uses those
1: final common pathways. Okay. Well, Dr. Starling, hang on here for just a second. This has been remarkable thus far, but I I, want to bring into the conversation Dr. Peter Goadsby. Joining us from Los Angeles, and Dr. Goadsby is president of the American Headache Society and a professor of neurology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and among the four winners of the 2021 Brain Prize for his work in identifying the role of a molecule called calcitonin gene-related peptide as a cause for migraine. Dr. Goadsby, welcome to On
3: Point. Thank you. Hi. Hi.
1: So, first of all, uh, you've researched headaches for um, about 40 years now, if I have this correct. Can you, first of all, tell us uh, what drew you to the field uh, uh, two generations ago to begin with?
3: Yeah, it seems like yesterday, but it's probably about that (laughs) amount of time. Time flies when you're having fun, it has (sighs) to be said. What drew me to it? I think what drew me to it was... advice i was well mentored and picking up something that you were just talking about it seemed to lack what you'd call what you described as a hardcore science explanation for what was going on if you would listen to what patients had to say they clearly had a significant problem and if you then looked at what was being offered as an explanation for the problem it was didn't seem sensible and uh, so I was. Uh, I, I became interested in trying to understand the problem. Mm. And I, can I just pick up something that you said in, in terms of the hardcore science? I think one of the problems, a problem that remains, is that we've made, we have made quite a lot of progress in the hardcore science. And like anything, you need to get that out. I don't think our what the progress progress limited we've made in the genetics and in the brain imaging side of things and now specific treatments we do have hardcore science in migraine it's just not got the it had that hasn't had sufficient how to say publicity in the way that you're doing it now
1: yeah you know i i, I have to say that um uh I, Far be it from me to say that scientists are free of, of, of prejudice because in this case to me the very definition of hardcore core science would be look there is something that people millions and millions of people are suffering from that we don't fully understand I mean the scientifically curious curious mind would be like that's a hardcore problem that we want to solve right um, so that's how I see what hardcore core science is it may not have like you said the uh, the headline drawing capacity of Alzheimer's or, or or other things, but just my my uh, my vote there for what constitutes real science. Um, but Dr. Gosby, we've got about a minute uh, before our first our second break here. Can you just quickly describe to us, like, how much has our understanding of uh, what uh, what are the drivers for these persistent disorders changed since you first entered the field?
3: Well, it's changed. It's unrecognisable, as Dr. Starling was saying. When I first entered the field, the the the, the view of the um, 30 to 40-year-old woman who had a headache when they menstruate and it cha- may change with pregnancy and they're just a bit, they're sort of sad people in the suburbs, it, it was quite um, pervasive. And I think amongst... Um, certainly, headache specialists, but amongst neurologists, that's changing because uh, we've understood that there's uh, that there's some clear genetics that we've understood that there's clear brain areas that are changing, which we can see on functional imaging. We've understood if we understand that if we can define the biology, we can actually produce designer drugs, if you want mm-hmm. the these uh, CGRP calcitonin generated peptide pathway blockers, which are effective. In a way that's uh, totally biological, totally biologically predictable.
1: Dr. Goadsby, hang on here for just one second. And Dr. Starling, got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is on point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So
2: my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite.
3: I'm reporter Ali Jarmanning, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead?
1: And who gets to decide? There should be some This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're going to get back to the topic of today's show in just a quick second. But give me a moment here because I want to draw your attention over to the On Point podcast feed because there you'll find a podcast only special conversation featuring this woman.
3: I think, in as far as the court has said that there is a penumbra that exists to encompass the entire purpose of the Constitution that I think one of the purposes of the Constitution was to guarantee to the individual the right to determine the course of their own lives.
1: That is Sarah Weddington, arguing before the Supreme Court in 1971 in Roe v. Wade. Weddington was the attorney who represented Jane Roe, and she was just 26 years old at the time she stood before the justices and won that landmark case. Now Sarah Weddington died last year, but back in 2017, I interviewed her extensively, and she revealed the fascinating backstory of how she got involved in Roe v. Wade, about her own experience needing an abortion, and her concerns about the future of abortion rights in the U.S. If you look at the Constitution, and even the Bible talks about when the first breath is taken, not when conception occurs. So I respect that there are some people who have that, you know, once conception occurs, that's it. But I still think it comes down to who gets to make that decision. And I just don't think it could be the government. So that's from my 2017 interview with Sarah Weddington. And we put that interview as a special drop in our podcast feed. So take a listen to it and subscribe. Wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, on Monday, we're going to talk about why the United States is moving in the opposite direction from much of the rest of the world when it comes to abortion. And we're going to focus on Latin America, where women have expanded abortion access in recent years, even as it's shrinking here in the United States. So that's on Monday. But let's get back to today, where we're talking about the widespread prevalence of severe headache disorders and how much we don't know about. Uh, All the causes, all the presentations of these disorders, and there's still a long way to go to help the tens and hundreds of millions of people worldwide who suffer from them. I'm joined today by Dr. Amal J. Starling. She's an associate professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Peter Goadsby joins us as well, president of the American Headache Society. And I'd love to talk with both of you more about the the key recent-ish discoveries that kind of unlocked um, a new era of headache science here. Um, and Dr. Goadsby, let me just first turn to you. We've mentioned it by name, calcitonin gene-related peptide. What is it?
3: Say it's, it's a chemical. Uh, it's what, 37 amino acids, so it's small. Um, it circulates in the blood. It's released from nerves. It's important in the brain, among other things, in terms of being the chemical the transmitter the messenger that allows pain nerves in the head to talk to the brain
1: okay so then dr starling i appreciate your patience here um from from your point of view again to explain to 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 listeners out there why um uh, why was it so important what what did this discovery allow us to understand better
0: Yeah, so what we learned in the research is that during a migraine attack, the level of this protein would increase. And also, when individuals are treated with migraine-specific medications um, for that attack, the level of the protein would go down. And then individuals with chronic migraine who have more than 15 headache days per month, so they have a more severe form of migraine, more frequent, they had chronically elevated amounts of this protein So based on all this research with the foundation laid by Dr. Goadsby and others, there was the thought that if we could develop medications that were designed based on the mechanism of what we understand in migraine, there were medications that were designed to block or reduce or modulate the activity of this protein, that maybe that would be effective for the treatment of migraine And also, we've had treatments for migraine, but these were things that we borrowed from other disease states. Treatment for migraine where we borrowed a medication from depression and anxiety or blood pressure or even a seizure disorder. And they were well-studied in migraine with double-blind, placebo-controlled trials and were effective, but they weren't initially designed with migraine in mind. So we always thought if we could find something, if we could learn about the biology of migraine, understand why migraine is happening Mm. in certain subsets of people, and design a medication based on that, maybe it will be more effective and maybe it will have less side effects than those other medications. And that is what we did find in the clinical trials. And then also we've been using these medications in the clinic since 2018, since they first came out on the market. And it really has revolutionized the way we practice headache medicine and been so helpful for a subset of patients.
1: Okay, but if I have my dates here correctly, and and Dr. Goadsby, let me turn back to you on this. Um it sounds like there was a long time between the discovery of CGRP and um the breakthrough medicines that Dr Starling just described is that right?
3: I'd say that's a, a long time is a generous a generous description yes meaning it took from well me, it was sorry that was a, that was a sta- <laughs> that was understatement i suppose yeah i mean we, Lars Edmondson and i developed the CGRP hypothesis in 1990 that's when we showed. Um, that's when we published that the cRP was elevated in uh, in, uh, in in micro-nerds. So it, it did take a long time to get from there to current therapies. I mean, there are a few of difficulties along the way. The first of the medicines that were firstly, there were people were interested in other things at the time. Um, the work we were doing was was not. People didn't really believe it, frankly. Um, Eventually, there were medicines that were developed. The first of the ones that were developed turned out to have, um, when in the body, they were metabolized in the liver to um, something that co- caused liver problems. So, mm. the first couple of medicines died, and then the monoc- these antibodies came along and uh, newer second generation of the. The, of the small molecule drugs came up. Uh, drug development, firstly, you've got to have the idea and then it's actually not that easy yeah. um, to get from A to B. A lot of things, uh, p- people forget, I think, all the difficulties there are in getting a medicine actually into people that works and is safe um, above... Pretty much anything else when you get started.
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just going to say that even under the best circumstances, drug development is a time-consuming process for good reasons. And the, yeah. you know, getting a drug to market that's that's safe and effective, um, we do actually have to slow the process down, um, probably more than many people would like. But there are reasons for that, so I appreciate you know, that bo- point. But go ahead, yeah, go ahead.
3: I think your listeners, I mean, it, it ought to be happy um, that some, at some level, that some of the early drugs died because the safety issues were identified. I mean, it shows, listeners should be uh, reassured that the process of watching what's going on actually works and that things that are going to be difficult get stopped. That's why It is a drag, but it's reassuring at another level.
1: Yeah. Well, as I keep saying, uh, this is resonating with a lot of listeners here. Uh, Alison Logan sent us a message saying, uh, mine migraines present as tension headaches in my back, neck and my left temple. They last days or weeks. Uh, Allison was taking Excedrin and NSAIDs every day. She says, no doubt destroying my gut. Finally got relief with an old school b- blood pressure drug and has been headache free for Six months. Uh, Corey J says, have had migraines since about 19 years old. When it comes on in the right eye, it can be debilitating. It got worse at age 47. Uh, Corey was suffering from one to two times per month for two to four days. The only thing that works for Corey about three quarters uh, of the time is uh, ris triptan R- or did I say tri- that wrong?
3: <laughs> riz triptan. triptan trip trip 10, 10, and
1: then zolmitriptan. Did I say that? That's right. Okay. And are are those drugs? Uh, are these are those the the new class of drugs we've been talking about?
3: No, they're well, they're new in the history of migraine, which has been identified in human uh, writings for a couple of thousand years. But the triptans were developed in the very late nineteen eighties and first used in the uh, early nineteen nineties in the treatment uh, in the acute treatment of migraine to stop an attack. There's uh, there's six there's six of them.
1: Okay, Doctor Starling. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Goadsby just briefly mentioned a word which, uh, in the past two years, has become more familiar to Americans than I think we ever thought possible because none of us had really heard of it before. But the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I w- I'll be honest; I was frankly surprised to see that um, that out of outside the context of COVID treatment. But can you tell us a little bit about that and and migraine or or, or severe headaches?
0: Yes, I I think that's a great question to talk about because often people, and not just patients, but even uh, healthcare professionals were confused as to why would you use an antibody to treat migraine when migraine has nothing to do with the immune system. And what the monoclonal antibody is, is it's really a vehicle to deliver a medication to a specific place. So antibodies are very specific for another molecule, highly specific. And so they have genetically engineered monoclonal antibodies for many different diseases. And so as long as you have a drug target... like CGRP. Now, in migraine, as we learn more about the biology, we have identified other drug targets that we're currently studying. So the end is not CGRP. Monoclonal antibodies for CGRP is just the beginning in migraine. But the antibody is genetically engineered to not have an effect on the immune system, but rather directly takes this monoclonal antibody to the CGRP protein or the receptor that that protein attaches to and it modulates the activity of it, in this case reduces the activity of it. And that's how it's potentially treating individuals with migraine. Uh Now, there's monoclonal antibodies for a lot of different diseases, and it's targeting different things that are responsible for those different diseases. And we aim to find other targets in migraine, and we'll develop monoclonal antibodies for those other targets to treat all the different individuals with migraine.
1: Interesting. Okay, so we've got a set of comments that keeps coming up over and over again. And so let me just read... A couple of listeners' uh, stories here. Erin Brown says, My sister has had headaches for over a decade, so bad, complete with slurred speech and blackouts, she doesn't remember hours of her life. She's had two injections into her neck to try to stop them, but each time the relief lasted less than a year, and insurance fought tooth and nail against the procedure both times, uh, and especially now that it's failed to provide lasting relief. And her sister lives with the 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 pain daily and fears losing her job because of the nature Uh, of the symptoms. And then Alice says, so glad to hear Dr. Starling mention that especially uh, for migraine disorder, headache is just one symptom of a whole body disorder. But Alice is also hoping to hear about the trouble affording and reaching treatments or getting treatments due to the cost and coverage issues uh, around new anti-CGRP meds. So this keeps coming up because we're talking about healthcare in the U.S. context, of course. So Dr. Uh, Goadsby, First, your your response to that about um, how insurance plays into people's access to to care for for migraines.
3: Yeah, well, you could take um, migraine and substitute just about any other of medical condition you want to, and insurance plays into the care of slash whatever you want to say in uh, in, in medicine. It's just, it's a it's a substantial problem, and part of the problem comes from the um, the attitude to migraine, the stigmatized attitude to migraine that Dr. Starling was talking about. If you think a problem is enormously impactful and dreadful and holding society back, then and you saw value in treating that problem. And as I use those words, people listening are going to have different conditions in their mind. But I was thinking about migraine. But if you see a condition that way, then the pushback on paying for it is very different to the pushback of if you don't see it as a substantial problem and I, so i think that this question of stigma plays into the problem of uh plays into the problem of access very significantly we don't uh there's much less moaning from insurance companies for example about i it's hard to mention other conditions because I don't want to seem like I'm dissing anything mm. else so to speak. but there are plenty of conditions you could think of where these antibodies are done or where other much ten, things that cost 10 times as much are used and no one bl- bats an eyelid because they think that's reasonable. So I, I think the insurance problem is for migraine is very much around the perception uh, of the of the disease and also a lack of recognition of the fact that if you this your listeners per, uh, sister if she loses a job yeah that's a bad economic outcome just put put the person down for a second because reduced economic activity is bad for the country altogether and migranters are just perfectly placed you make them well and what they do is they work they spend money they go to the shops they do the business which turns the country over now migraine affects people from the age of 18 to 65 you know news bulletin They're the taxpayers. Mm. So if you if you want society to function, then um, then looking after people with migraine is is in the interest of society. Not to mention the sort of moral perspective.
1: Right, and one hopes that um, now that you know after decades of uh, of work by people like you, Dr. Goadsby, and, and Dr. Starling, that now that we have a better understanding, at least, um, or if we're further down the line in understanding the mechanism, right? So there's the quote-unquote hardcore science there, uh, along yes. with, as, as you said, you know, when we have tens of millions of people suffering from this, the measurable economic impact, maybe attitudes can change Um Around, around people accessing treatment here. Now, we have oh, one minute in a conversation that could have gone much longer. But Dr. Starling, I'm going to give you the last word here again, because this has resonated so powerfully uh, with listeners. We always want to give people something that they can do, right? So what would you advise people who are still, or are currently dealing with, with headache disorders? What's a toolkit for them that we can give them in the last 30 seconds?
0: So, so many people, like your listeners that um, had feedback for us, um, have disengaged from the medical community because they've faced that stigma, because they weren't offered options. I always beg for people to re engage with healthcare and come to your um, primary care provider, um, obtain a neurologist, find a headache specialist, because we do have options available for people now that we didn't before. So we can treat people who are living with migraine.
1: And for potential future generation of healthcare providers, Seems like there's a market in need of more headache specialists. So Dr. Amal Starling, Associate Professor of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. And Dr. Peter Goadsby, President of the American Headache Society and amongst the winners of the 2021 Brain Prize. Dr. Goadsby, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.